and welcome to this episode of G220 Radio. My name is Mike, and this is episode number 340. 340. This episode's a little bit different, and it's not live. This has been pre-recorded. I am recording this early. My internet went out today, and just it's it was easier to kind of record early, try to upload at a different location and set up for the normal time. So I encourage you to chat. Hopefully I can be on chat, at least kind of paying attention to it and be able to interact a little bit. But unfortunately, I can't do it live. Also, Ricky is also not with me this week, so it's just going to be me again. But we're going to get excited. We're not going to go back into the Psalms. I'm going to go teach on something else. It's a Sunday school lesson I taught several weeks ago. And to think about intercession. And specifically to think about Abraham's intercession for Sodom and Gomorrah. I think this is important when we kind of think about what is going on, what Abraham is interceding with, what's kind of his arguments for it, but also to consider the state in which Sodom and Gomorrah is at. They are a nation plagued with sin. They're a sinful, and I guess in this point, a city-state. And I think there are some elements that we can draw on when we think about Abraham's intercession with the Lord before he destroys them in verse 19, in chapter 19. So we'll be looking at Genesis chapter 18, verses 22 through 23. And I'm reading out of the original textual edition of the ESV, the 2007 version. That's a little old. And to, to think about... or the 2001 edition, to think about these ideas. So, to leading up, what has happened before this? Well, the Lord has appeared to Abraham in the beginning of verse 18. He is by the oaks of Mamre, and he entertains the Lord and two angels. And we know these are angels because in verse one of chapter 19, it says the two angels came to Sodom. So you have the Lord and two angels. We don't know anything about these men. Obviously, they have been, they have appearance. And we can tell in the story with Abraham in chapter 18 that they ate. This can bring a whole bunch of metaphysical questions that we just don't have time to answer. But that's what the Bible presents us. And so Abraham is trying to be hospitable to these men. And this is important when we think about what happens in chapter 19 when the um, Sodom, the Sodomites, 
are trying to be evil. They're not showing hospitality. Lot is trying to, but the people around him are not. So the Lord appears to Abraham, and we see now this promise of the son. Now, the promised son has already happened in chapter 17. This is when Sarah knows about it, hears about it, and she laughs. And in verse 16, we see that they leave and they look towards Sodom. And the Lord asks, should we hide from Abraham what we're about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may commend his children and his household after him to keep in the ways of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down there to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcries that has come to me. And if not, I will know. We see here in this beginning part, now they're moving away as we set up this setting for Abraham's intercession. That the Lord has heard the cries of Sodom and Gomorrah. And that he wants, he's going to tell Abraham, the question is whether they should hide these things from Abraham or not. And the reason why we can consider why he wants to hide them or not is the fact that he has a point that in telling him what he's going to what the Lord's going to do to Sodom and Gomorrah is that to kind of persuade them to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Sodom and Gomorrah is going to become kind of the example of what it means when a nation turns away from the Lord. We're going to receive God's judgment. But to make sure to see it for himself, he's hearing the outcries. The Lord wants to go and see it himself. I think there's an example there of kind of going to the source, seeing it for yourself. But that's not our point here. So we see here that Abraham, the Lord is asking whether to see, to show Abraham, tell Abraham about what they're going to do. And that is to bring destruction in Sodom and Gomorrah. And so they're they're walking, they're heading towards Sodom. And this is where our section begins. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near the Lord and said, Will you indeed swept up the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then swept up away the place and spare 
it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, but to put righteousness, the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked far be it from you shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just. And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous people in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I am but dust and ashes. Supposed five of the righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for, for the lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it for the, if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to, the, to him and said, Suppose there are 40 found there. He answered, For the sake of 40, I will not destroy it. Then he, Abraham, said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will not speak. Suppose that 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose that 20 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, not let the Lord be angry, and I will I will speak again, but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went on his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. So we see here Abraham's intercession for Sodom. He's pleading with the Lord back and forth to save the righteous. And there's a lot that we're going to see in this passage as we look into it. But let's just start at the beginning. So the two angels turned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, The language here may on the surface seem kind of explanatory, that the Lord, that Abraham is before the Lord, he has to draw near, he's like close, this kind of is drawing in. And this, we can say, happened physically. This is exactly what happened. Abraham was near the Lord, and then he came maybe a little bit closer. But commentators, and I think rightly so, have realized that there's probably something more going on. That this isn't just Abraham acting in a way, but that this was also a symbolizing of Abraham coming to the Lord in prayer. So draw near here is much more than just, well, he came closer, but this kind of attitude of drawing to God. We can think about this when looking at the prophets. So Isaiah 58 gives us this idea. Isaiah 58 verses 1 through 5 says, cry aloud and do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. 
Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgment. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and have and and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast you seek your own pleasures and oppose all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with the wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose, a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under his feet? What Will you call this fast? And a day acceptable to the Lord. And we see here in Isaiah the indictment of the people. They are doing religious things. They are fasting. They are trying to seek the Lord. And, and we saw in verse 2. They delight to draw near to God. So this idea of drawing near. Is this kind of spiritual drawing towards God. It's coming to God. Here we see in fasting, but we could say prayer. And to to think about what Abraham is doing, that Abraham is now kind of coming before the Lord. He is coming to sit or to plead with him. We can see this in Zephaniah, minor prophet, towards the end of the Old Testament. Don't spin too fast. You might miss it. Zephaniah 3, 2. He says, speaking of Jerusalem, she listens to no voice. She accepts no cre- correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. You may think in the New Testament, this kind of idea in Hebrews chapter 4, thinking about our high priest in Christ and considering. The idea, so Hebrews chapter 4, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast to our confession for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respects has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. This is what Abraham is doing. He is drawing near with confidence to the Lord. Where we do this spiritually, privately, or corporately with our church, we do it with sincerity. Here, Abraham gets the opportunity to seek the Lord physically in his presence. 
So he gets to draw near to the Lord. And so the first step of intercession that we can see for us to learn is that we have to come near to God. We come to him in prayer. We come to him in fasting and knowing the word of God and using that to guide our prayers. We've talked about this in other episodes, but we see here very much Abraham coming to God, pleading with God. There's one sense in which what we see here Abraham doing with his voice is what his grandson Jacob will do physically when he wrestles with the Lord. We see this kind of a pleading act as we move into what Abraham is saying. And so we see here Abraham standing before the Lord. He is drawn near to the Lord. He wants the Lord to hear his prayers, to hear his requests. I think Abraham here has in mind his nephew Lot. I think there is this idea of knowing that Lot chose to go that way. And there's a sermon illustration in that. That Abraham is hoping, praying, pleading with the Lord to save because Lot has in one sense trusted Abraham's going and Abraham's God as Abraham moves. As he goes out of the, the land of the Chaldeans and now into the land of the Canaanites, the promised land. So Abraham comes to the Lord. He's going to intercede. And he, his first plea, which all the other pleas will be based off of. He says this, Will you indeed swept away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then swept away the place and not spare any of the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing. But put the righteous to death with wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the just judge just should not the judge of all the earth do what is just? When we think about this plea, let's consider Abraham's main argument. Abraham is seeing that there are kind of two types of people. You have those who are righteous and those who are unrighteous, the wicked. And so Abraham, thinking about there's this destruction happening on this city. Is God going to kill the righteous, going to judge the righteous like the wicked? Hmm. 
this is kind of powerful. Will God judge the wicked and the righteous the same way? So what does Abraham mean here with righteousness? I think when we we should consider Romans 3:10 for none are righteous no not one coming out of the Psalms. And when we think about Ephesians 2:3 that we're all unrighteous. We all act unrighteously. And this is the foundation in which we understand total depravity. That man in and of themselves cannot be righteous by themselves. As Paul would say in Ephesians 2.3, Among whom we once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So is Abraham saying here that there are perfectly righteous people, people sinless people in Sodom and Gomorrah? And I think we have to say no. I don't think that's what the text leads us to believe. And when we, we think about what righteousness is, we don't have to go very far in Genesis. We see in Genesis 3 that we are sinful creatures. That creation has fallen. And Genesis 4 makes it even clear that it's passed on from generation to generation when Cain kills Abel. But what's interesting is that in Genesis 6-9, we... Talk about this guy named Noah. And just prior to this in chapter 6, we see the sin of the world. We see in verse 5, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and every intention of the thoughts of his heart we're only evil continually. That is the state of man just before the flood. And verse 9 though. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man. Blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. What we can glean from this to help us to understand is that Noah is called a righteous man. And that in his righteousness, he is blameless in his generation. That is, he, he is acting holy. He is, he is blameless. He is like Enoch. In which he walked with God and he was no more. And so Noah walked with God. Noah was a righteous man. He had communion with God and obedience 
And I think we have to say here in a little bit as we describe it, that he had faith. I think we can see this when we consider Genesis 15, 6, in which the Lord has given promises to Abraham that he will have a son and that he will have children that outnumber the stars. And Moses tell us, tells us, and he, Abraham, believed the Lord, Yahweh, so God's covenant name, and Abraham, be Abram at this point, Abram believed the Lord, and he counted to him as righteousness. So there is a belief in God, not just a general belief in God, but a belief in God's promises. We could say that Noah had the same. Noah's name was this belief in God's promises. Enoch walked with God. There is this understanding that that Enoch believed in God's promises that he would send a son to destroy the serpent. And when we see now here in Genesis 15 that Abraham believed and Abram believed and it was counted to him as righteousness, that Abraham now is looking at this and is like, are you going to kill those who believe in the promises of God with those who do not believe in the promises of God? Are you going to kill those who strive to be obedient to the moral law? Or are you going to treat them like those who don't care about the moral law? And so Abraham is coming to Abraham, to the Lord. He is pleading with him, seeing that there are those that believe in the promises, that they have what we would call now faith. They believe in the Lord. They're striving towards holiness. And what is God going to do these people if he destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. But what we see here is that Abraham, while thinking in these categories, is thinking not just about, well, these people are righteous, so you should save them, but that he should save them because of his nature, mainly his righteousness and justice and his mercy. Let's think about it. The this idea that in verse twenty five, Abra- Abraham says, "Far be it from you to do such a thing that is to put the righteous to death like the wicked." Far be it from you. So Abraham here understands. God's 
God's justice, God's goodness, God's righteousness. What's interesting to think about it, and when even when you think about when Moses intercedes on behalf of the Israelite people after they have committed idolatry, they've made a golden calf. God should have destroyed them. What does Abraham appeal to? God's glory and God's righteousness. Here, Abraham appeals to God's righteousness, his, his justice. Mom, let's consider. Abraham isn't saying that Sodom and Gomorrah shouldn't receive judgment. He is, his concern is, what will happen to the name of the Lord if God would to put to death righteous people in an act of judgment? When we consider Romans 5.1, there's therefore no condemnation in those who are, who are in Christ Jesus. And in Abraham's case, he is looking towards the Savior. He's looking towards the Messiah. He's trying to figure these things out. He doesn't fully understand, doesn't fully grasp, but these are promises he is holding on to. And there is no condemnation for Abraham because he believes in the Lord. And so Abraham is coming towards the Lord in knowing God's righteousness and his justice, which spins off of his holiness. God is holy, cannot have sin in front of him. And Sodom has acted wickedly. They have, dis they have disregarded God's moral law. They have disregarded how God has created them to act and to be. And we hold that God is righteous, that God cannot just let sin go. He may be long-suffering with sin. He may be patient with us, the sinners, but God will by no mean clear the wicked. He won't. And so when we, we look at Abraham's plea, he is saying, look, I know you're righteous. You're the just, I mean, or shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? I think implying that if God were to judge the righteous like the wicked, he would be acting in injustice. That is not just for him. But he also is appealing to God's mercy. That the Lord would not destroy a city if there's righteous. John Christostom, early church father, in a sermon of Genesis mentions this passage. And he finishes recounting Abraham's questions. And he says this, I think this is very pointed. Oh, the goodness of the Lord beyond all telling and all imagining. I mean, which of us living in the middle of countless evils could ever 
choose to exercise such wonderful considerateness and loving kindness and executing a sentence against our peers. What is John Christostom trying to tell us? That if we were in Abraham's condition and his in in his environment, would we do the same? Or would we be more like Elijah? who, like Moses, is on Mount Sinai, which is at that time named Mount Horam. He goes to the cleft, kind of signifying and repeating what Moses has already done. And he charges and wants judgment on the Israelite people. This is the northern kingdom. Jezebel has sought his life. She's tried to kill the prophets of God. He has just recently demonstrated that the prophets of Baal are false and that these people should worship the true God. And yet he comes to the mountain where Moses interceded for the people in light of God's glory and he wants judgment. He wants judgment. And just like Moses, we see the thunder and the lightning and the earthquake and the wind. And God's not in any of it. He's not there. Instead, he's in a still, small voice. And he corrects Elijah and says there's 200 men who have not bowed their knees to Baal. He's going to show mercy. On these people, on the northern tribe, who is in one sense like Sodom and Gomorrah. But he's going to show mercy on them because there are 200 people who have not bend the knee to Baal. And here in Genesis 18, we see Abraham petitioning the Lord in his mercy to have mercy on these people. Mercy on the wicked. They don't deserve the mercy. But Abraham, knowing the righteous don't deserve this judgment, is pleading on their behalf to have mercy on the town of Sodom and Gomorrah. In light of the wicked around them. And we see him coming continually to the Lord. He starts with 50, then 45, then 40, then he goes to 10, so it's 30, 20, and he stops at 10. And he comes to him repeatedly, knowing his position. Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Who am I but dust and ashes? So so his posture here in this intercessionary work is one of humility. He is coming before the Lord in humility, knowing who God is, his righteousness, his 
judgment, his justice, his mercy, his holiness. He may not have complete pictures, but he knows enough to know that he stands before the just judge of all the earth. And he is pleading with him, interceding for Sodom and Gomorrah, for the righteous in there, that he will have mercy on them and by extension, mercy on the people. In one sense, we can see this as a fulfillment of what God promised that those whom Abraham, those who bless Abraham, Abraham will be blessed, and those who curse Abraham will be cursed. And here, Abraham is extending this kind of blessedness to these people. He is blessing them by coming to the Lord in intercession. And obviously Abraham is not the perfect person. He goes to Egypt early in his life, lies to the Pharaoh. After this, he will lie to Abimelech. They're in the land. He's not perfect. But what we see here in Abraham is his intercessory work. But I want to also notice, and I think this is important to think about, is that Abraham, as the covenant head, of the Israelite people and the people in the who believe the faithful that he is making intercession just like Moses who is now going to be the the mediator for the Israelite people in the beginning of the Mosaic covenant this brings about and brings us to reflect on one aspect of the earthly and continual ministry of the lord of jesus that he is a prophet a priest and a king and in this case this highlights his priestly nature Towards us. He is our great high priest. We can just consider what's in the confession. In the confession, in make sure I get the right chapter here. Chapter eight of Christ the Mediator. This is what it says, it says to all those of whom Christ has obtained eternal redemption, he does certainly and effectively apply, communicate the same, making intercession for them, uniting them to himself by his spirit, revealing to them and in by the word, the mysteries of salvation, persuading them to believe and obey, governing their hearts with 
by his word and spirit and overcoming their enemies by his almighty power and wisdom in such a manner and ways as which is most consistent to his most wonderful and unsearchable dispensations and all of the free and absolute grace without any condition foreseen in them to procure it. The Lord makes intercession for his people. Benjamin Bedham, thinking about Christ's work and what it means for us. He talks about, again, thinking through Christ as intercessory. So question 28 in the Baptist Catechism how doth Christ execute the office of a priest? Christ executes the office of a priest in his once offering up a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God and in making continual intercession for us. So as Benjamin Benham thinks about this, this idea of intercession, he says that Christ as a priest makes intercession. We see this. And 1 John 2, 1, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. An advocate is one who makes intercession. Is he an able? Yes. Psalm 89, 19, the Lord hath laid upon one that is mighty. He talks about how Christ is a wise and skillful advocate. He's a righteous advocate. He is the... Jesus Christ, the righteous, 1 John 2, 1. So you have, he is righteous, and that now we have an advocate in it. He is merciful as a high priest, Hebrews 2, 7. Hebrews 7, 25, he ever lives to make intercession for us. He always hears the father always hears his son, John eleven forty two, And there is only one mediator between God and man. That is the man Christ Jesus. And that's from 1 Timothy 2, 5. That he prays for us. That we come to him boldly. And to, to think about what Abraham is doing. He is interceding for these people because they need God's grace. I think when we think about even in our own culture, in many ways, we have similarities with Sodom and Gomorrah. We see in verse in chapter 19, and as the Bible explores it, that they had an issue with homosexuality. They want to know these guests. And we kind of can see that it's homosexuality because Abraham offers his daughters. And they don't want him. And he offers them because they have not known a man. This is the same language that we see used of when Abraham knows, or sorry, when Adam knows Eve and bears sons. 
has sons. This is the deep, intimate, sexual knowledge of your spouse, the other person. And so these people want to do what is unlawful. That is to be only done between a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage. And we see this in our culture today. And there are other things that we can think about. But how often do we intercede for our countrymen who do not know the Lord? How often do we think about those who are ungodly? And to, to seek the Lord, that he will show mercy to them. How often do we consider even in our own estate in this, in this sinful country that we ask the Lord not to judge us like the unbelievers? These are very applicable ideas. We can see the sin around us in our country. We can moan about how far this country has fallen from Christian morality. From the Judo-Christian Judo tradition. But how many of us are interceding for these people who hate God? How many of us are fasting, drawing near to the Lord to ask for his grace on our lives, knowing that if he was to judge America like he judged Sodom and Gomorrah, that he, we would suffer the same fate as the wicked. We can trust that God will not condemn us or treat us like the unbeliever. That he loves those whom he saves. I think when we consider other prayers like Praying for our presidents. Praying for those in leadership. That these are good things. That they don't lead us into God's judgment. We should be, and the only good example from Jonah is going out to the streets and proclaiming God's judgment is coming so that those will ears will hear and turn to the Lord by the power of the Spirit. I think when we, we look at Abraham's story and we see 
in one sense, and I'll, I'll discuss this in a little bit, this either or, like that God does not judge us like the unbeliever. That his righteousness and justice will be upheld by his action. Will the judge of all the earth do what is just? But what verse, what chapter 19 tells us, what chapter 19 shows us, is that one way in which God answers Abraham's prayer is that he removes the righteous from the situation. That's what the angels do. They come and they grab Lot and his two daughters and his wife, and he brings them out. They bring them out to the city, and they, they're to run to the hills, but they go to the next town. And that town, Zar, is saved. Zar would have been swept up in the destruction. It is not very far from Sodom and Gomorrah. There in the, the Benjamin fields south of the Dead Sea, and that town is spared because of Lot, the righteous one. So we see that the Lord honors Abraham's prayer. But we also see that the Lord removes his people from judgment. So we need to pray. We need to intercede for the unbelievers to the high priest who can save them from their sins. We know elsewhere in the Bible that we are to proclaim the gospel of peace, the gospel that reconciles God's enemies to himself and not just, and that they are merely friends, but that they are brought into the household of God. When we look at Abraham's intercession, we see someone who comes near to God on behalf of the righteous and the unrighteous. That God's righteousness would be displayed in not destroying the righteous people who trust in him. But at the same time, that shows God's mercy on the people because they deserve the judgment God should deliver. But we see that God listens to Abraham's prayer. God's name is not tarnished, is upheld, the wicked are judged, and the righteous are saved. I think when we think about this in kind of our eschatology, is this kind of what Paul is talking about? In the last day, in the sounds of the trumpet, what happened? The righteous are raised to life and the unrighteous are judged. The, the righteous go to heaven and be, or go and to the earth and they stand behind the not behind the Lord and his second coming. He removes us and then he judges the world.
So this will come. God will remove his people from his judgment when he destroys this world before he recreates it. And when we we think about these things, it should drive us to prayer. It should drive us to think about what is going around in our world, in our cities, in our states, and to intercede that the Spirit of the Lord would come and kind of ultimately bring true revival. The work of the Spirit and the the converting of mass sinners in a special way. This is what Abraham's intercession to teach us. Because we have one who intercedes for us continually by the Spirit through his word. The Lord Jesus Christ. The one whom we believe who took away Our condemnation bore it on the cross that we may be saved. This is who Abraham looked for in a shadowy form. But now on this side of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we believe in the promises of God that he will return. And that he has saved us from our sins. And now there is no condemnation in those who are justified. That is our show for tonight. It's episode number 340. Lessons from Abraham's intercession. Join us next Tuesday as we come to you alive on YouTube and Facebook at 9 p.m. Tuesday evenings. You can always catch us on the podcast and check the description below to see if you can get the Mark and Avoid t-shirt from Be an Echo. If you want to support us, we have a couple ways down there um, that you can directly support us. You can buy us a cup of coffee through buy a cup of coffee and or you can just pray for us pray for our ministry and the word that goes out that god will use this to bring revival as we think about these things join us next week to 9 p.m eastern youtube and facebook for ricky my name is mike thank you for joining us and you have a blessed week.